to do not go quiet. Here's the deal. I'm the best there is, plain and simple. I mean, and nobody can hang with my stuff. With Eric Wilson. It's a big, hairy American winning machine. Eric Henry, what's up, my friend? What's up, E-Dub? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, hey, it's miss- great talking to you. You hanging out. Look, Tell me where you are right now, because you look like you're in the middle of like the uh, Augusta or something. I'm on my front porch, so um, I'll show you really quick. I live here in Chattanooga, and there's the Tennessee River, and that's Elder Mountain, and there's our football field. So um, I'm kind of up on, on the side of a kind of a mountain, and I'm on my front porch talking to you. So this is an amazing place to start because you've had quite a journey from uh, USC quarterback to being at the Baylor school right now. So let's just start with um, where you grew up so that the people that don't know you, which most of the people listen to will, but where you grew up and then we'll kind of work our way to where that, that porch that you're sitting on right now. Yeah. Yeah. It's a fun story, but yeah, grew up in Columbia, South Carolina. My dad, Bill, was a longtime high school football coach. He was the head coach at Lower Richland High School when I was really young and then got the head coach and AD job at Dutch Fork High School where I went and played quarterback for him uh, and then went and played football at the University of South Carolina under Brad Scott for, for one year and then, and then Lou Holtz. Which is kind of interesting because our paths crossed later, but I had coached at Carolina – in the early, the first three years for Brad Scott. And then I left and went up to Murray state and you probably came in, I think two years after I left since it was the last year. Um, yeah, but I, I, what's your favorite Lou Holt story? Because that's, you know, when we coach together, some of the funnest times we're listening to your Lou Holt stories. So give us <laughs> your best one. Oh man. Yeah. Coach was a character and, uh, there's a lot of good stories and he did a lot of good things. You got to remember, uh, Coach Scott's last year, we won the first game I was there, and we lost 10 in a row. And then, you know, Coach Holtz's um, first year there, we lost all 11 games. I think we had something like 13 offensive linemen get hurt. Um, and, you know, Coach Holtz was a pretty I remember that. Guy. That was a total train wreck. It totally <laughs> I remember. Was. I remember after I left Carolina, the the I left the year, I think we went six and five, but we were playing with a ton of sophomores and juniors um almost went eight and four and i thought they were going to make the jump the next year and the next year they went one and ten yeah it wasn't very fun i can tell you that um but we had just lost to vanderbilt coach holtz's first year we were zero and nine and uh we had to play florida and clemson who i think were both in the top 10 or 15 at the time so it was pretty evident that we were going to go zero and 11 and uh, after that game, Coach Holtz was a little frustrated after the Vanderbilt game. And he, he walked into the uh, locker room and goes, hey, guys, Brad Scott deserves a trophy. This damn big for winning one game with your sorry asses. And then he walked out. So uh, that's one of my favorite Holtz stories. <laughs> yeah, you, you always entertained us at practice with the Lou Holtz invitations. So what did he do to, to get that? This is part of. You know, when when we when I do a football episode, which is the this is actually the first football episode I'm doing, but I want to dig into you know some of the things that create winning programs and winning traditions. And the one thing Holtz did was no matter where he was, he figured out how to win. What did he do from 
not a schematic standpoint as much, but from the standpoint of his approach to team building to turn that thing around because before he left, they went to two Outback Bowls. I think they had a couple 10-win seasons. He completely flipped the script on South Carolina and really kind of launched them in the map in the early 2000s. I mean, he did. I mean, we started, like I said, really, really rough. But I'll say this, Eric, and I can, I think I can speak to this now that it hits me a little bit deeper. But I knew we were going to be successful the moment he walked in the room. There was just a, a presence, um, a confidence that he had. Uh, and he just kind of made us all believe that something great was getting ready to happen. And he insisted upon that. And I think he down deep believed that even through that first year that was so hard. Um, that we all kind of had to fall in line with those expectations that he had for us. And we all adopted the belief that he had for, for our program. And I think that, you know, the older I get, the more I realize some of those intangible qualities of coaching are, are very, very important. And uh, when I look back at Coach Holtz, you know, that was, a, that was a quite a, uh, a moment that I felt, in, you know, early on in his presence. And so did that have – an impact on you in terms of, I guess at this point you were a uh, freshman, sophomore in high school, or excuse me, in college. Did you know you wanted to be a football coach at this point? Was that the life goal or where were you thinking that you thought, what did you think you're going to do with your life at that point? I think I knew then that I'd probably get into coaching. In fact, one of, I would say my biggest honors in terms of a compliment that anyone's ever given me is, uh, that that first year we went 0-11, I was running the scout team. We had seven quarterbacks on campus, and I was the seventh-string quarterback, uh, if there is such a thing. Um, I don't even know I what know, ribbon I that didn't is. even know it went that deep. Is that? A- yeah, I, I don't think the color for that ribbon on field day, you know what I mean? So, uh, yeah. anyway, I'm running I'm running the scout team, and Coach Holtz comes up to me in his golf cart. It was one of the first things he ever said to me. He said, hey, Eric, what do you want to do when you get done? And I said, I want to coach football. And he said, do you want to coach in college or do you want to coach in high school? And I said, I wasn't sure yet. And he said, well, if you want to coach in college, you come see me. When you graduate, I have a job for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and to his word, he hired me when I was done as a graduate assistant. So uh, that to me, you know, I guess he saw something in me. And, you know, the biggest one of the biggest compliments I've ever received. And to people who you know have, haven't been in the coaching community, Explain a little bit what graduate assistant means in terms of the, the coaching tree. Well, yeah, you're there. You're the help, right? And, and it's, it was different back then. Like now, every college coach basically has their own assistant coach. Every assistant coach has an assistant coach. And those guys can be called graduate assistants. Some of them are called analysts. Some of them are, are just student assistants. But back then, you only had one graduate assistant on offense and one on defense. And you basically served the whole offensive staff. You did all the grunt work. I mean, you worked 110 hours a week. You broke down all the film yourself. Um, you went and got coffee. You went and got lunch. You know, what you did, you got their dry cleaning, whatever they needed to do. But at the same time, you got to learn a lot of football in the process. And so I was able to do that for a year. I helped skip coach tight ends. I basically kind of coached him for him because he was calling the offense. Um, and it was a wonderful year of learning for me. Yeah, I remember I was a GA for three years at Carolina. Um, And, you know, when you're in the coaching world, you hope that graduate assistant position will propel you into either a job at the school you're being a GA at or that one of those assistants that you're with at that school will kind of take off and go be a coordinator somewhere and take you with them. 
Um, yeah. Didn't happen with me. None of the, none of the guys that I worked with went anywhere after Carolina, and I was you know kind of lucky enough to tag on somewhere else. But um, what happened? I think you were a GA there for one year, and then what was your next step? Yeah, well, a guy named Herb Barks was the headmaster at Hammond School, and um, Herb was a longtime headmaster at Baylor School here where I'm at now, and uh, and I heard about this job at Hammond. I had gone over and helped Phil Petty and Ryan Brewer and a couple of guys uh, call a couple of games while I was a GA and the team was on the road. And so, um, so anyway, you, you just, they were, you weren't coaching them, but they just kind of said, Hey, can you come call a couple of games? Well, the year I, before? I helped, I helped <laughs> okay. them. Call I just went up top and told them what I saw and stuff like that. Gotcha. And what a cool place Hammond could be. And, um, and the job came open. And long story short, uh, Dr. Barks hired me. And a guy named Chris Angel was the head of the upper school at the time. And um, so I started my head coaching journey at 24 years old, having zero clue about what I was doing at the time. So that's an interesting concept for me, because a lot of times when you take a head coaching job, you're walking into a place that has a lot of infrastructure, even if they're not winning, the infrastructure is there. But Based upon our conversations in the past, you really kind of had to build that from the ground up. So what were you faced with when you first went there? And how did you go about tackling those first couple of years with building the program? I think uh, the first biggest roadblock was my own ignorance, right? You know, I thought I knew a lot about football, but when you have to, you know, run an entire organization, you realize how little you really know. Um, so there was that aspect to it. Um, but you know, and also Hammond being in a private school league, which in South Carolina, um, there wasn't a lot of private school leagues that could really compete with public schools. Uh, a lot of the infrastructure, like you mentioned, a great weight room, a great weight program, the organization behind the scenes, uh, those types of things weren't in place yet. And, uh, and, but good thing is I just got done playing at South Carolina could model a lot of what we did after how we did things at South Carolina. And that was the process that we underwent at Hammond. And um, our third year there, we uh, won our first state championship and, and then had a pretty good run after that. And you won a, just a total of how many state championships at Hammond? We won, uh, I was there 17 years and we won 12. <laughs> 12 state championships. Okay. So what were some of the things that you took from Lou Holtz when you went into that program um, in terms of the, the building blocks of, Hey, and I guess to start with, what was their record? Like wh what were they kind of like when you went in as a program? They had won a couple championships in the early nineties. Um, and then I think had some runs of championships in the, in the eighties, uh, late eighties, early nineties. They had a good stretch and a few in the seventies. Um, but I think the year before they had won seven or eight games, but the years before that they had really struggled. Uh, and they had changed over their coach, a longtime coach, to an assistant coach for one year, and that didn't work out. And so they were looking for a coach. And um, But, you know, I learned so much from Coach Holtz. I, I really learned probably even more from his son Skip. And Skip and I are still close to this day. Um, and just the way that Skip, how approachable he was, I felt like he was a player's coach. Um, and again, you learn so much schematically. I learned a lot from Dave Guglia Elmo, Coach Googe, about offensive line play. So I knew a lot about football. Uh, I loved football and I loved being around young people. I don't think I really knew how to be a, a leader yet. 
I certainly didn't know a whole lot about defense or special teams. And so uh, those things, you know, you learn by fire and mistakes. And, and, and I made a lot of those early on. And I mean, I still do, but uh, not to the level that I made then. And so, um, you know, it was just a great education right. for me as a young coach. What do you think some of the leadership mistakes that young coaches make are? And, and maybe some of the mistakes you made from a perspective of leadership early on uh, in your first program as a head coach? Man, that's a great question. You know, I, I, I would imagine like when you're 24, 25 years old, you, like, you really don't know who you are yet. I think a lot of people think that they do, but you haven't faced a, a lot of adversity in your life. Maybe, maybe some people have, but maybe I hadn't. And uh, I think I was trying to emulate a lot of people, good people, people that are respected. But, you know, I don't think I quite knew exactly what kind of coach I wanted to be yet and who I was. And, um, and I think that, you know, kids are savvy today and they can see the distance between who you really are and what you're portraying yourself to be. Uh, and I think in those early years, I was trying to be something. Um, and then later in life, I kind of found out who I was and, and was able to lead more from an authentic place. Yeah, that was so what do you think? What does that place look like for you in terms of now that you've obviously you're very established, you've won a lot of state championships, you're building another program that you did exceptionally well with in your first year. So what are the what are the fundamental building blocks to building a cohesive unit? Because I think personally for me that's one of the main things when it comes to creating a team is you have to create create cohesion first and you have to somehow eliminate the focus on the individual like what am i getting out of this and create an environment where people where people want to play for each other and they make the larger goal of the team the primary goal which sounds simple like conceptually it sounds simple but i think it's one of the hardest things to do when you're building a team. So what do you think those, what are those fundamental building blocks that allow you to do that? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a lot. And those are years and years ago by that. I think you realize how to do it more efficiently and, and more authentically. Um, I think number one, you have to understand like, what do you value? Like what, what are your personal values? Uh, what do you want to see reflected uh, within this organization and because because at the end of the day we all know uh, any organization is a reflection of their leader and, and for you think, what is that well i mean i have five values and i have three um what i call kind of objectives and my, my five values are love uh courage truth toughness and gratitude and those are the five things that i preach and i think you gotta not just like understand those definitions, but how do those actually play out uh, within your organization, within your team? How do you model those things? How do you hold people accountable to those things? Um, and how can you um, diagnose when those are off? How do you safeguard them? Like those are important things. And I think when you're young, you, you, you have a feel for what they are. Hey, I want, I want our guys to love each other. I want us to be a tough football team. Uh, you know, but I think the older you are and maybe the more reflection that you do and the more experience that you have and the more that you study and ask others, the more that you can diagnose those things a little bit more uh, poignantly. And you can discern when there's a disruption in that harmony. Um, and so, you know, to me now, sitting as a 43-year-old coach, I know what those are. I know 
how it looks when those are healthy values being um, embodied. And that's the biggest thing is I can get up and give you a, a sermon or, or, or talk to you about these types of things. And that's great. But I mean, I'm like Carl Jung said, you are what you do, not what you say. And your team is how they perform, not what you say they should do. And I think that, you know, those things have to be uh, focused in on. They have to be uh, articulated and, and you have to hold people accountable to those things. And again, the more experience that you have with them and you've seen them actually fleshed out and embodied, the easier it is for you to, to, to diagnose those. Yeah, the the one that you brought up first. So I, I I'd like to dig into a couple of those. The one that you brought up first was love. Um, yeah, and it's and it's interesting because I I completely agree with you on that. And I think, from my perspective, that's one of the things that I felt like I was good at um, with kids. It's it's kind of this. I've always said that uh, that a kid will not play for you unless they know that you care about them and love them first. And if they know that they'll go to the end of the world to play hard because they know that at the end of the day, you're in their corner and you're in it for them. But from the perspective of a program, how do you get that across to your team? And when you're evaluating that, which you just mentioned a minute ago, when you, you you're kind of got a pulse on that and you know, it's there, or it's not there. What does that look and feel like uh, on your football team? Well, I think we have to define love first, right? We yeah, do that. Say, yeah, well, what is love, man? Well, love, you know, it just means we hug each other and we tell each other we care about each other. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> Four. So I teach our guys on day one. We're going to talk about this on day one because it's very important. Love is the steadfast commitment to the well-being of another. So I'll say that again. Love is a steadfast commitment to the well-being of another. That's and awesome. You have to be steadfastly. That means like this happens all the time. This isn't just how I feel on Friday nights. Right. This isn't how I feel when my name's in the paper. This is how I feel all the time or how I'm going to operate all the time. Uh, I'm going to be committed to this team, to the well-being of this team. You know, and this is like, to me, you think about marriage and some of the problems in marriage is people think it's just the feeling that I've got to, you know, have these little flutters in my heart about my wife all the time. Nope. Ask anybody that's been married a long time. And you know this, Eric. It's like, no, I'm committed to that person. I mean, that's it. And it, it, it stops there. So the day that I feel like you're more committed to yourself or the day I feel like you're more committed to your own personal goals rather than the team's goals, we got a problem. That means that we're you're not loving the team above yourself. Uh, the day that you're um, denigrating your teammates uh, or if a coach is berating a kid unnecessarily or he's attacking a, a, a kid personally, like that's not that's not love. OK. We have to be steadfastly committed. And where my values, I think they're tied in together. The next one is courage because courage is the enabling value. You can't do anything with courage. It actually takes courage for you to tell somebody the next thing, which is the truth. It takes courage for you to act out. And we both know, Eric, I mean, football is a game of courage. Uh, it's a violent yeah. game, a very difficult no game. People are throwing their body at your body and trying to hurt you. Um, and, and so you have to have courage to get out on that field, perform, to put yourself out there, to withstand the Twitter trolls. Um, you have to have courage to love each other and to tell each other the truth. And that's why the truth is our next one. And this is something I did this past year for the first time. We had truth sessions where we would watch some clips of the film together 
And there are times we call people out, our best players. Hey, man, I know you're a four-star, but in front of everybody, you're not giving great effort on this play. And because I love you, I have to tell you the truth. I have to call you out on that. Now, we'll also praise people and say, man, this one kid, you're being so unselfish. And you that, that's amazing. That's the truth, too. So you need to give people the truth in, in, in good and in bad, in constructive ways, and praise them. And it's got to be tethered. And that's what I love has to be tethered to truth. I think in society today, sadly, probably the number one virtue is empathy. And empathy just says, I'm with you wherever you are. I don't care what you're doing. I just support you. The beautiful thing about football is that doesn't work. You know, you, you've got to be able to tell the truth to each other. And I love football. You know, we say it's a microcosm of life. I just say it's life. Like life is a game. Football is a game. And we get that objective feedback every single week. Um, and it's a, a, it's a mirror into our own soul as a team. And, and in order to confront that, we have to be honest and speak to each other in love and with truth in order for us to heal and move on. And so I think the, the, the more I've coached, the more I realize that these conversations and these lessons are so critical to the health of a culture and the progress of a team. Yeah, I love what you said there. I mean, that's the, the fact that you define those things for your kids so that they understand when you say that word, what exactly do you mean? And it's not just what happens on the football field. I think, you know, people that watch football and love the game um, really get tied in to what happens between the lines, you know, from the opening kickoff to the close. But I know for myself as a coach, I love to win. And obviously we've, we've won a lot of games together and I've won a lot of games, um, you know, outside of that as well. But honestly, the, the most satisfaction that I take and have taken in my career is when I know that I've had an impact on somebody uh, and the way that they're going to live their life and they come back and I see them 10 years later, they're married, they've got, you know, one or two kids and they say, I remember when you said this to me, it made such a difference and I've never forgotten it. Those to me, those are the, those are the, that's the reason why we do this. And the way that you're teaching that, I think the lessons those kids are learning, they will be the leaders that go out in the world in the next, you know, five years. And I think that's where, I mean, we have to be involved on a personal level. Like if I say I love you and I'm steadfastly committed to your well-being and I don't check on your academic work as a coach, then I'm not loving you. Like I'm, I'm not telling you the truth when I say that. So, right. you know, I be fully invested in, in them as a human being because I want to see them flourish in the long term. And I made a commitment to them and they made a commitment to me to do that. Um, and so I think when you're, when you're, talking about those things and you're constantly reminding your players and your coaches that stuff will start to, to build the understanding grows. Um, and you see some, some, I call it big magic happen, you know? Yeah. I, I feel like those were the things that I didn't understand as much when I was younger. Um, you know, when I was younger, I was very focused on the technical aspect of everything, learning the game the best way I could, because like you, there were so many things that I knew, I didn't know. And I knew, Hey, I, I've got to get better at this. I need to learn this. And I was so dialed into that. Um, and I had this very, you know, hot, fiery kind of temper that was came from my playing mentality. And to me, as I've gotten older and coached a lot longer, that's the difference in 
building that cohesive unit, that team that we talked about a long time ago in or earlier in this podcast is that if a kid, if those kids are playing for each other, and like you said, if they've got a steadfast commitment to the well-being of everyone else on that football team, it doesn't become about them and it doesn't become about even what they do on the field, the feeling that they get. I mean, I just had a conversation with a, a young man who played for us a year ago, who's, you know, a freshman in college. And he's like, I had no idea how much I was going to miss it. And I said, what do you miss the most? And it, he didn't say anything about blocking or tackling or winning football games. He said, I miss being in the locker room with guys that I loved and guys that we like poured sweat with and we fought for a common goal towards. Yeah. And he, and Eric, you, you look at that and you look at the world today. Um, you know, when I look at young people today, to me, the biggest problem that we have in the world today it's not these superficial things. It's not drugs and alcohol and all these kind. It's the fact that we have a generation, and, and man has always been struggling with this, that doesn't have meaning in their life. They don't have something that they wake up and they look forward to struggling for. Um, and football gives you a purpose, and it gives you a family in which to pursue that purpose. And if every human has those two things, you got a shot. Um, and sadly, you know, nowadays we, we see a lot of people that are in despair because they don't have that purpose and they don't have that family. And what you see, too, is these guys that finish up their careers um, playing football, like you just mentioned, what do they miss? I miss that purpose, man. I miss that mission. And I miss my brothers in which to do it with. And you see them struggle when when they they don't have that. And I think that's probably why I love coaching the most is because it gives me that brotherhood. It gives me those guys to, to go to war with, so to speak. And it gives me that mission every single day. Yeah, I, I always tell people when, you know, I think one of the things, and this is a societal thing that doesn't really ever get talked about, but I think it's starting to be talked about. I'm seeing it be talked about finally, but men need a tribe, right? And, and I'm not saying that women don't, but I'm just saying there's something inside of a man's heart that, needs uh for lack of a better word challenge needs danger in some situations for certain people but needs so this thing that brings something different out of them right we're not domesticated animals like we are not built to live in a house 24 hours a day go to work punch the clock and not have other men that we connect with and work towards some kind of a higher purpose and i think when you're an athlete you get fed that all the way through your athletic career and then literally one year you're done and no one really tells you hey if, if you don't really work to find a, a tribe that you can stay a part of like your life changes completely and i think that leads to a lot of depression it leads to a lot of guys feeling lost in their life and if they don't figure that out they don't even really know why it's happening yeah i couldn't agree more and, and as you were talking eric what was what was hitting me is the, all the words that you were using is the word that I use a lot is that we men need a struggle. And yeah. so you know, my theme that I use uh, at, at Hammond those last couple of years and what I use here is struggle well. Uh, and I joke that I'm a struggle salesman. And I'll tell our parents that every year. It's like, I actually want to sell your son something. It's going to cost him everything. Okay. And he's going to absolutely hate it at times, but then he's going to absolutely love it at the end of the day. He needs it more than anything. We all need to struggle for something. And how do we do that well? Uh, and that's something that uh, I call, it's one of our directives. So 
uh, we call aim true, mean everything, struggle well. Uh, and we talk to our guys about um, what those things mean. I've worked those out kind of philosophically over the years, but um, I, I do believe that particularly as men, you know, oftentimes we're, we're told like we want to get to this place in life where we can be comfortable, um, that we work to have our castle, to have our the, the girl or what have you. But I actually think what we want is is the struggle. It's not that those things aren't great. They are. But when we lose the struggle, um, then we lose that burden to bear. Uh, we lose meaning in our life. And, and then you see people really struggle. Yeah. I So the last podcast I did was just me. And I kind of went through this story about my transition from athletics. And I, and I figured out that I needed some kind of a struggle pretty quick. I started, I did triathlons for like eight years. And then as I started a family and I didn't have time to train three hours a day, I did CrossFit with a group of guys. And those things always fed me, right? Like I was completely satisfied. And then like about six or seven years ago, I started having this back issue and it took me out of all that stuff. And I, I ended up getting depressed. Um, you know, there was a lot of stuff that went along with that. And I didn't really recognize like how much of a difference because you always take your body for granted. Um, and it's just literally in the last six months since I found a really good physical therapist that I've been able to start challenging my body again. And I've kind of got this, this carrot that I've hung out there for myself that in fall of 2024, I'm going to go out West and do an elk hunt, which is like eight to 10 miles of hike in, in the mountains, you know, and it's going to be a bow hunt. So I'm starting to learn the bow and I've created this new struggle for myself as I've kind of built my body back up. And my attitude and mentality is here, right? Compared to two years ago, you know, my saving grace in the last five years has been coaching football because that's mm -hmm. where I got my tribe. That's where I was like, I felt like I was, I had this, that fire started to burn again, but there was still this piece of me where I couldn't go test my body. And for me, that was the struggle that I always really, really wanted. Um, and I, I think I got that burned into me when I was young. I mean, that's part of being an athlete, you know, too. Um, and and, I, and I, you see that. And you see guys, it's so funny, you see guys that are super successful in whatever they do. Sorry, somebody tried to call me. Um, <laughs> anyway, so guys are super successful. Sooner or later, they're like, okay, I, I need something new. I need a new struggle. I need a new challenge, you know. And I think that's just kind of how we're built because we're built to want that struggle. I love that you're doing that, man. That's so cool that you've got these goals set for you. Um, and you know, that carrot to kind of help you chase a little bit. And, uh, I mean, I'm, I would be scared to go hunt elk, but I mean, more power to you. <laughs> you know what I, I, so I, I think this has happened to a lot of people. It's called adult onset hunting. I've never, like, I was never a hunter growing up. I didn't know anything about it. My brother did it, but I saw this guy on Joe Rogan, like a year ago, his name's Cam Haynes. And he's, he's kind of a lunatic, right? He grew up out in Oregon. He's a bow hunter, but he also was an ultra runner. Like he literally runs 26, 35 miles a day. And he's, he's wrote this book called endure. Um, and he talks about the same thing, right? The idea that we have to have purpose, that we weren't built to sit around and be comfortable. And that, like you said, when you're young, you think that's the carrot. And when you get it, you're miserable. And it's because you don't have anything to struggle for anymore. And when you realize that and you start going after it, like you get all that back. Yeah, it's like the old, I mean, 
you've probably seen that stats um, that the, the earlier people retire, the earlier they die. So, yeah. Because you know, <laughs> right. there's no purpose yeah. left, right? I think it's, and that's, it's critical that we constantly challenge ourselves. And I think for me, you know, I loved every moment that I was at Hammond, you know, 17 years is a long time to do anything. And toward the end, Eric, you were there. We were just in, you know, it, it was a struggle to maintain, but it, you know, at the same time it was like, all right, is this what I'm going to do the rest of my life? And so I started to venture into some other areas. You know, I started the podcast about South Carolina football, the fade in podcast. And that was kind of me doing something different and a new struggle. And I did some radio and, uh, you know, started doing some writing and, and studying and things like that. Uh, and then the opportunity came up at South Carolina, which was a which was a big challenge, right? Um, yeah, I knew that. I mean, that was something that you had really wanted to do for a long time to test yourself at that level. And I was so happy that you got the chance to do that um, and get an experience doing that. And some people, it's their lifelong thing, and some people it's not. But having the opportunity to do it was great, and I knew that was something you really wanted to do to test yourself. Talk a little bit about that transition and how that felt for you going from being a head coach to not being a head coach, but being at a much higher level. Like what were the pros and cons to all that? Yeah. I mean, it was a wonderful experience. Um, I learned a lot about the game of football, about how that organization works, about leadership, about myself. Um, Cause you know, Shane would say, and, and I totally agree with him. You're growing the most when you're most uncomfortable. And I was certainly uncomfortable uh, at first, just because I was jumping from high school to the SEC. And honestly, Eric, the biggest thing was, you know, I'd coached quarterbacks for 17 years and to go in and coach tight ends. That's what probably gave me the most uh, nerves was just making sure I felt good, you know, communicating technique and the things that I was doing, you know, as a tight end coach. The recruiting came very natural and easy to me. I, I really actually enjoyed recruiting because that's just all interpersonal and, and I can handle that. Um, and so yeah, I, I know, I, I know what that transition feels like because I, I was a D like I played D line. Obviously I played both sides of the ball in high school, but I played D line in college and semi pro. And then when I got to Carolina, the opportunity that was there was offensive GA, right? I had never coached O line or played O line past high school. And they were, and, and Brad Scott was like, Hey, you know, this position's open. I'm going to give you the tight ends in the spring. And if they, perform well enough you'll get the job if they don't you're going to be back in the film room so i can like completely relate with you being thrown into a position you've never coached before and having a really high performance expectation it's pretty unnerving well you know me i mean if i'm going to do something i'm going to do it with my whole soul and yeah i want really good at what i do uh, and then the good news is i had a six-year tight end nick muse um he was a really good football player they ended up getting drafted by the vikings and, you know, I heck, I picked his brain a lot because he was a student of the game and then Shane had coached tight ends himself. And so I met with him and met with Coach Sat and he had coached tight ends before. And so there were a lot of guys that I could lean on a little bit. At the end of the day, I think the most important thing I could do was relate to those guys and free them up and, you know, techniques, technique. And after a couple of weeks, I knew exactly kind of what to look for, what to remind them for and things of that nature. And then it became more just interpersonal relationship, uh, how to encourage them, how to help them through frustration, through success, through failure. Um, you know, I think the lifestyle is very different. Um, there are parts of it I really enjoyed. I enjoyed going on the road and recruiting. 
I enjoyed the excitement of Saturdays in the SEC. Um, I certainly missed the time with my family. Uh, having been a high school head coach and been in charge of my own schedule, I was able to, to spend a lot of time with my family, and that was certainly difficult. Um, but overall, it was a huge just net positive in my life, and I'd probably still be there right now uh, if it weren't for this situation. Um, and this is a unique situation that I had to go investigate, and, and, and we can get into that a little bit later. But overall, it was a wonderful experience. I learned so much about the game of football, um, and, I, and I love South Carolina, and I'm just grateful that Shane gave me that opportunity to do that. Yeah, tell people who, you know, obviously not many people have coached at that level. Um, everyone sees what happens on Saturday, and that's the really exciting part. But tell people what the life of a college football coach looks like. I'll, I'll give it to you like in season maybe. Yeah, in season. So, all right, let's just say uh, the game is over. Uh, we played a lot of night games or if you're traveling back or whatever. Normally, you would grade the film that night, whether it be on the plane or bus or just in the office right after the game. You'd have the rest of that evening off, which was usually didn't have one. Um, we <laughs> I would, was going to say, by the time the plane lands and you get back home, you're lucky to be home by 2 or 3 in the morning. Oh, yeah, no doubt. You're and, lucky. Um, we would get up, and I'd probably get in the office around 9, and whatever I hadn't graded or whatever I would do then. Uh, we would meet as an offense at 11. We would meet with Shane about our offensive performances at 12. Um, and then we'd have a little time and um, and then to dig into, you know, future opponents. We would meet yeah. with the team around three or four and go out on the field for maybe an hour. And then we used to stay there till about nine that night, 10, 10, 30 that night, um, working on the next opponent. Uh, yeah, Mondays, and remember, this is a Sunday. So you're you're there from about nine in the morning till about ten p.m. on Sunday. Yeah, get there about six six thirty the next morning on a Monday. The kids don't come in on Monday, but it's a full game plan day. And mm -hmm. uh, by the end of Monday, you want to have that base game plan kind of ready. So uh, we would split up different ways to uh, uh, break down the opponents. Um, I was in charge of of charting kind of base fronts um, and some you know I would help with some third short run game stuff, goal line stuff with coach ad. Um, and, and I was kind of based kind of fronts was kind of my area where I, but we broke it all up as a staff and, you know, like Montario did blitzes and step did uh, coverages. And, uh, and then we would get together as an offensive staff, probably about four or five o'clock and then kind of go through some base game plan thoughts. And that was kind of more of a brainstorm session. Um, you know, Sat would use what he wanted to or do what he wanted to do. Uh, and then we would start to get ready for Tuesday's practice because we practice in the morning. So, uh, and that would take a while to get Tuesday's practice scripted out and planned. So you probably get and, home about 10 or 11. Yeah, on just Monday. For, for people who, again, um, scripting practice, we're basically talking about, you know, you don't go out there and call plays and practice like you would call plays in a game where you've got a sheet. You're literally blocking off every period of practice, whether it's a five minute block or a 10 minute block or whatever you're saying, Hey, here are the things we're focusing on during this time. It might be inside run game. It might be goal line, short yardage. It might be, you know, passing inside the 20 and you're literally scripting every play and every look you want to see on defense. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. And that takes time. It's so a lot of work. And then Tuesday you get up, you know, 
you're there at six. You got meetings before. Um, you got practice. We would get off the field around 12, eat lunch for an hour, watch the film of practice, look like take note on all the corrections. Staff meet at four and start getting ready for Wednesday's practice. You probably get home around 10, 1030 on Tuesday night. Wednesday was very similar, although on Wednesday nights we would do a lot of recruiting calls. We had like a family dinner, like six. The, the, the families would come up and have dinner with us. And then we would get on and do recruiting calls, get home around 10. Thursday was the last kind of practice. Um, and then usually Thursday around, as soon as we got done with our 4 o'clock staff, we would go home. So you got dinner with your family on Thursday night. Friday, you're back up in the morning, you know, not quite as early. Can maybe get there midday. Depends on if it was a, not midday, mid-morning, if it was a, a away game or not. Walk through, travel, have the game on Saturday, and, and do it all over again. So it's it's a it's a grind. It's it's a lot. You know, it requires a lot of your time. And um, but you know that's kind of the nature of the beast on that level. Did you ever add up your hours? I did that one time when I was a GA. Oh, and I, just to see how many there were. Did you ever add yours up one week? Uh, They're probably pushing a hundred. So it was a lot. Yeah. The week the week I added mine up, it was one hundred and twelve. <laughs> Yeah, sounds about right. But we're we're basically sleeping at the stadium. Yeah, I mean, but you know what, man? I, I, you're doing something you love for the most part and enjoy. Uh, you're doing, and in, in, in the middle of that, you're integrating a lot of recruiting. You're texting kids, calling kids. So recruiting's kind of always happening in the middle of all that. And and honestly, like yeah. as a position coach in the SEC, I'd say like fifty percent of your job is recruiting. Um, and so, you know, as much as, as you're working on other stuff, you're also, you know, now granted during the season, it's clearly more geared toward the season, but overall it's, it might even be more than, than that. Yeah. Well, that old saying that is so cliche, but is so true. It, it's not so much about the X's and O's it's about the Jimmy's and the Joe's and in high school, you don't control that very much, but in college you do, that's like, you got to play with the guys you recruit. So like you said, like. 50% of your job is what you're doing out there on the road is going to impact the guys that you're coaching and playing with, you know, two to three years down the road. Yeah. Now with, with technology and social media, you're kind of always on. So you're, you're able to hit up guys throughout the day that, you know, you know, in the past 15, 20 years ago, you go on the road and see kids and stuff like that, write them letters. But now, you know, I kind of felt like if I hadn't touched a recruit in two or three days, I was losing. So like I needed to make sure I was, in constant contact, you know, with whatever group of guys you're recruiting. Yeah. And you obviously, so you played at Carolina, you were GA at Carolina, then you come back and coach at Carolina. There is something unique and special about the university and it hasn't always had this humongous winning tradition. It's kind of won and then lost and then won and then lost. Um, and Shane's done a really good job of, of turning the program back around. Y'all had a really good year last year. Um, what is it about the University of South Carolina that that's special? What's unique about it that you love and that attracted you back to it so many times? I would say two words pop out of me, loyalty and passion. Um, you know, South Carolina has its challenges in terms of being a contender in the SEC. You know, we there the last time I checked, we haven't signed any recruits ever out of the Atlantic Ocean. Um, so that doesn't help. <laughs> um, when a lot of these other schools are, are surrounded by even more talent than we are. South Carolina is a smaller state from a population standpoint. Um, so, you know, we're at a disadvantage to some of the schools that are in 
you know, have access to a larger population, your Georgia's, your, your you know, your Florida's. Um, and then even from a, um, you know, legacy history standpoint, we don't have what some of those other schools can lean on. So, so it's a challenge, but I think the thing that you notice in South Carolina is in spite of those challenges, you know, our fan base is just incredibly loyal and passionate and you see that yeah. weekend. And I think that that's something to tap in to differentiate ourselves. And, and I think that coach Beamer has done a really good job of, of kind of mining that source, so to speak, and, and using it as a, as an attraction to great players. Yeah, I completely agree with you. There, there are so many places around the country, you know, where if they win two or three games, a stadium's half empty. I, I think that's one of the things that's most unique to me about South Carolina because they have had two win seasons and four win seasons. And regardless of, of how many games they're winning, that stadium's still full. There's still almost all the time 80,000 fans plus in that stadium, regardless of, of how well the team's doing. And that's not something you see in very many places across the country in college football. No, and I think that that's why – when that job came open, um, you know, I felt like Shane was such a good fit and I certainly lobbied for him to get the job. Now, um, didn't, you know, I, at the time I had no idea that he would bring me on staff, but uh, I certainly thought he was a great fit. Um, and I still do. And I think it's, you know, proved to be true and will continue to prove to be true. You, we need a steady guy that loves the university. And I think Shane has shown himself to be that that understands it. And he had been here before on coach Spurrier's staff and, you know, he gets this place and he loves this place. And I think he wants to be here in the long term. And I think that that long term commitment can really steady out um, and, you know, dissolve some of those big wave inconsistencies within the program. Um, and, and, you know, listen, are you going to win the sec every year there? No, you're not, but you can be competitive. And if you're steady, 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 you can be knocking on the door more than we ever have before. Um, and I'm hopeful that those, those days are ahead. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think he's such a good fit, you know, and he was very clear and, and knowing, you know, I don't know Shane, but I, I know people that know him. And the one thing that was, you know, really true was this was a place that he wanted to be. It wasn't a job that he took because it was a big job. He loved the university of South Carolina. He had been here before. Um, and he's got he brings this unique combination of youth, uh, the ability to go out and recruit at that level. Um, he's got this special teams background that when you look at really, really good football teams, that's a huge component of their their ability to win close games. And it's something that helped y'all win close games this year and continue will continue to do so for him. So I think he was an amazing hire for the university and and his longevity is going to really help the program. So. You know, with that being said, you kind of you took this job that kind of was the dream job. And then a year later, you're faced with this decision with Baylor and you end up leaving the university to take the job at the Baylor school. So walk us through that and help me understand what made you decide to go there, because obviously that was a pretty big carrot to get you to leave South Carolina. Yeah, I mean, it was an incredibly difficult decision. Um First of all, um, Chris Angel is the headmaster here at Baylor, and we worked together for 17 years at, at Hammond and had a great relationship. He was our headmaster there the last 11 years. 
Uh, and so when he called, um, I knew, and I'd been to Baylor before and saw what kind of place this is. And when people in South Carolina kind of ask me, what is Baylor like? Is there something comparable? And there really isn't. I'd say Wofford or Furman. It's much like a small college. Um, I've seen pictures of it. It's insane. Yeah, it's 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 an incredible place. And uh, I knew I needed to go at least come look at it and see because I think in our 130-year history, there have been like 11 coaches. So you can do the math there. This job's not going to come open again while I'm, you know, probably able enough to coach it. Um, so we came up and and looked at it and, and, and then weighed the pros and the cons. We had to paint a picture on both sides of what that would look like to stay, what it would look like to go. Um, and, and then honestly, I just think that this is probably just more of who I am. Um, I, I have kids uh, that are 16, 14, and, and 11. Um, I've always been able to spend a lot of time with them, and I value that. Um, I'm a believer that your biggest legacy that you leave in your life is your family, not your career. Um, and so I felt like personally, and I'm not judging anyone else, that I was in a better position to care to that legacy here. Uh, that factored into it. Um, it also, I, I really love um, running an organization, being a head coach. I uh, learned a lot from Shane in that year too that I was excited about incorporating as well. Uh, I think I'm, I'm most alive when I'm most creative and I can be most creative when I can run the show and call plays. And I really love calling plays too. So, you know, when people ask you like, all right, well, what, what happened? I mean, it's kind of like, it's hard to describe it because it's kind of like, well, why do you love your wife? Like there's a billion reasons, you know, of why you chose yeah. this girl and this girl, you know? Um, and what you just kind of said was like, what happened? Like, I don't, I know that people sometimes perceive that, right? Oh, you're at this huge job in the SEC. What happened? Like, like there was some kind of negative consequence that would make you make that decision. And I know that's not the case, but I think when people have never coached, they kind of see the shiny brass ring and that's, you know, the big stadium on Saturday and they don't understand all the other things that go into the decision-making process. So, and, I, and I mean, I, yeah. Again, like I said, I would probably still be there if, if it weren't for this place. I just, this is such an incredible job and opportunity for me. It really just kind of emphatically checks all my boxes of who I am as a human being um, right now at this stage in life. And you never know what can happen. I'm not saying I wouldn't coach college again someday. I, I don't know. Uh, I used to think I had my you know, future planned out, but, you know, God had a different plan. And, um, and the only thing you can do is follow your heart and your conscience. And, and that's what, what I did. Um, and, you know, the beautiful thing about it is I've got a great relationship with the guys at South Carolina, with coach Beamer, with the university, I'll always be a Gamecock at heart. Um, and I love Columbia and always will. And, uh, this is just where we're supposed to be right now. And, and I'm, I'm definitely fulfilled with this job. I love it. Um, and last year was, you know, the most fun I've ever had coaching football. Um, I, I really love the impact that I can have on young people. Like it really motivates me. And I get to have a broader collective impact as a head coach than I could as a position coach. Um, and that's something that really weighed on me is um, I, I, I'd figured some things out philosophically on how I wanted to approach being a head coach again. Um, and to have the opportunity to do that at a school like this, uh, just excited me about, you know, those types of, of conversations and lessons and the impact that I felt like I could have on a broader group of people, honestly. 
it just was a little bit more meaningful to me at the time in my life. And, and, you know, like I said, you never know where, where God's going to, going to lead you, but, um, you know, I feel like we made the right decision and, and I'm, I love it here and I'm grateful to be here. Yeah. It didn't surprise me at all. I mean, I, I'm, I've just always felt like, I mean, I've worked with you for a long time. You're built to be a head coach. You're really good at it. Um, you've got a very clear understanding of the direction you want to go and how you want to build a program. And, and I do think you have that impact on young people. And I, you know, for one thing that this was just kind of my feeling having coached at both the high school and college level is you can have an impact on college kids. Um, and I have had impact on college kids, but your ability to really change the way a young man thinks and feels about himself in high school, uh, to me is exponentially larger, uh, because you're not dealing with the trappings of potentially going to the NFL and, and all the things that kind of draw kids away from those thought processes in college. Um, and there's a lot of, a lot of young men out there that don't have dads in the homes and the opportunity to impact them and the way that they think about not just, you know, their life, but how to conduct themselves as a man, as they get older, I think that's invaluable. And that really, really, I think occurs at a greater uh, scale in high school. Yeah. I mean, I, I totally agree. I, I always say, I think high school football is the highest level of football there is. And by highest level of football, I mean, those types of things, those intangible yeah. types of, of qualities that you can, um, you know, have interaction with as, as you're coaching. And I, and I do think too, you know, listen, you can have an impact in college for sure. You're going to, I think you impact everyone you come across regardless of what you do. Yeah, um, agreed. But, you know, nowadays in the world of NIL, the world of transfer portal, it has become more and more like a business. And I think one thing that was hard for me to be honest and frustrating was you could recruit your tail off. You could sell the university, the loyalty, passion of our fans, our great head coach, the, the great environment and culture we had at South Carolina, a personal relationship with him and his family. And then somebody comes in and doubles your number and you're going to lose that kid. And I, I, I mean, I'm being frank here, but that's the, uh, that's honest truth now in the world of college football and NIL. Um, I'm not saying it's all bad, but I'm saying that that's a practical reality. And sometimes I was like, man, am I coaching or am I more of an agent here? You know, not that you could do it yourself, but you certainly had ways to be involved in those things. So I, I don't know that that to me was, was tough. It made it a little less appealing to coach college than, um, you know, had I done it 10 years ago. Yeah. I don't think I could do college football the way it is now. Um, I think the, you know, what we talked about earlier, the lessons that you learn from struggle, a lot of those have been taken away from college athletics because of NIL and kids, lots of situations don't have to struggle. You know, if they come in and somebody's ahead of them for a couple of years and they can go jump ship and play somewhere else, then they're going to do it as opposed to, you know, potentially struggling through that for another year or two, starting their junior or senior year, but learning the lesson of longevity and the lesson of, of patience and really fighting and clawing to get, you know, something that's important to you versus, you know, just taking a, an easy opportunity to go get it somewhere else, because I don't think that serves you very well in life. I will say one thing, we've talked a lot about football, but we really haven't talked much about X's and O's. And I know we're running kind of long on time, but 
uh, I would think I would be remiss and your fans would be upset if I didn't do one little X and O thing. So I'm going to give you one game that you get to go into and you get to carry three run plays, two screens and four route combos. What are they? Three runs inside zone counter power power, um, not stretch, not stretch. No. I mean, cause I think I can get what I want out of the inside zone nowadays with all the mm-hmm. little we can do with it. Um, okay. I think, Counter, of course. I just love counter. I and love then, counter you know, too. You got to have some type of, you know, short yardage play, like a power. I think I can go into a game. In fact, Eric. True power or power read? I would, well, you didn't tell me I had to differentiate. So I, I could play <laughs> well, with power. It, it can be the same thing. You can have a very variation of it. That's there fine. I was just wondering which one you like better. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, what's funny this year, our second game of the year, it was new, new offense, new coaches we could only run the inside zone and counter. Like I didn't call stretch. I didn't call anything else. We just weren't there yet. So we literally yeah. went into that game and two run plays. Um, stretch, and again, stretch is just, there's so many little coaching points about stretch to be good at it. Yeah. And if you don't want to be good at it, maybe just run pin and pull. But yeah, yeah that's right. Man, you know, you know gap it of, down. Board, but at the end of the day, you got to be able to execute it. Um, two screens. Two screens. Um, now, are you counting like 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 now screens or bubble yeah. screens? Uh, uh, no, not now in bubble screens. You know, I'd say any kind of tunnel screens, tailback yeah, would, screens, those kinds of things. The the tunnel screen, I'm a sucker for. Um, you know, I always love that one. And then I would say the slow screen to the tailback would be the two I would take in. Uh, and then how many pass concepts did you give me? Um, so I gave you four pass concepts. I will come back and say on the screen – I agree with you on the tunnel screen. I actually learned how to run that a lot better from you than I ever ran it before. Um, but the other screen that I would probably run other than the tailback screen is I love the throwback screen to the single side. Um, yeah. You know, call it what you will, but basically, a, you know, three-step sprint to a three-receiver side and then kick in the tunnel to the uh, single receiver side to the short field. I freaking love that play. Yeah, I mean that'd probably be my third, right? All right, so um, you get four four route combos. Well, I think and you let's go eliminate for... three step drop because I know you're going to throw three step. So four vertical or so four five step combos or five or seven. Okay, and I mean, so what we'll do is build these in, but we'll have you know we'll have a lot of variations off of all of them. So uh, I'm going to assume you're giving me all my variations, but yeah, I'm I'll giving just... you your variations. Give me your all base right, well, concepts. Of course, you got four verts. You got to be able to do Love that. Love it. Yeah. We'll choice off the outside too. Um, um, I'm a big sucker for Spurrier's righty and lefty concept, you know, where, you know, the smash on one side with a deeper slant in the middle of the field. Um, Love it. And you can toy with that a good bit. So, mm-hmm. so that would be probably number two. Um, I think you got to have some ability to throw some type of flood, whether you're sprinting to it or throwing it from the pocket. It's a little harder to throw from the pocket from in high school because the hashes are so wide. But you can mm-hmm. also – we worked in the boundary a good bit this year. Uh, and then lastly, I loved – we ran a bench concept this past year where everything was moving back to the sideline. It's basically like a smash concept into the sideline with, uh, you know, a little under route and a basic route on top of it. Everything, everything moving one way, just a pure progression read. So those – A three-layer read? You're talking three or two? Was that a three, like yeah. 
three layers or were you talking like a bench with a corner over the top? Well, so it's basically smash into the boundary. Um, you know, however you can get to that a, a thousand different ways. A lot of times okay. we just slash our, you know, our arrow, our tail back into the flat. We condense that single receiver and he would run some version of a corner. Then yep. to the field, our three receiver, he would run, you know, 12 and in a basic route. Our second receiver would run, would run the under right now, like coming across the linebackers. Mm-hmm. And then our normal run like a little hesitation under. And so you just read it to the boundary across, you know, yeah. it's truly one, two, three, four, you know, is your smash to the boundary open? Nope. Okay. Then I'm coming to that under route. Nope. Then I'm going to that basic route. Nope. And then I'm going to that, you know, that fourth slower kind of under route. Um, and we had some success with that, that this year. And I've learned more Eric, uh, the past couple of years from, since coaching with you to employ some more progression reads and what I'm doing. I really kind of like them, and I think we, we got the quarterback, as you know, uh, with Muschamp that can do it. So um, I, I'm, I've been incorporating more and more progression reads. Yeah, I did more of that this year too. I just I had kind of studied what Sarkeesian was doing at Alabama, um, mm-hmm. and I really I really kind of fell in love with um, with the, kind of that deep cross concept from the number two receiver or number three receiver to the field, and then. I, I was releasing the tailback a ton this year. So we'd run some kind of a deep cross concept to the boundary with the tailback in the boundary flat and then a post over the top of it. And we'd just yeah. read it, you know, low to high. Um, yeah. And we, we made a living on that this year. We did a decent amount of stuff like that. So I, I was kind of doing the same stuff. It's just, it's hard to cover, man, especially when you're trying to, when you flood the backside, when you flood the boundary, that's hard to cover. No question, man. That's all good stuff. Yeah. All right. Last question. You're sitting across the table from your 24 year old self. What's the one best piece of advice you would give him? I think be yourself. That's what I usually tell people just to be yourself. Well, I mean, I think you first have to find yourself, like I said earlier, Um, (laughs) but don't be scared to be who you are and to lead from, you know, I would say the passions and the, that you have and the values that you have. Uh, make sure you're studying those that they're the right thing. Uh, make sure you're constantly um, evaluating how you're doing things and, and trying to improve on them every year. But, right. um, you know, I would just say be free and be in yourself um, and don't put so much pressure on yourself and try to have some fun, man. That's good stuff, man. Hey, I appreciate you being here. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah, man. It's always good to hear from you and best of luck with the podcast and, and, um, I'll be watching. And we're, we'll hit Chatty Vegas the next time we head up to Nashville and see y'all. Come do it, brother. I'll see you, man. See you, brother. All right. right. You still here? Thanks for listening to the Do Not Go Quietly podcast with Eric Wilson. Go home. Go.